Very thankful for the privilege to study once again. I want to pick up where we left off when we were looking at practical instructions. Living the life of Jesus is an absolute imperative. And you will find that the Bible, you know, one of the things I learned about God is that God is not prodigal. Does anybody know what I mean when I say prodigal? Very good. Whoever said that. Very good. Was that you, Matthew? Okay. I love that. Wasteful. That's what the word prodigal means. You always hear about the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful. That, that young man was wasting away the goods of his father. One of the things about God is that God is not prodigal. He's not wasteful. Meaning, whenever the Lord puts an instruction in the word, whenever Jesus leads by an example, Jesus expects us to pay attention to those instructions. He's not wasting time. He's not wasting even ink. And so when we understand that, I want you to think about this. You see, when earlier today we were studying, you remember that we were looking at different examples of the way in which Christ lived. Jesus lived by the word. He encouraged us to live by the word and to exercise faith. And we learn that faith is fully trusting the word of God to do what the word of God said it's going to do and to depend fully on the word of God to do what it said it was going to do without any other evidence. Jesus expects us to understand the importance of praise. He expects us to understand that we need to live lives that demonstrate that God is indeed good and that all things Work together for good. True story. Ellen White was uh, getting ready for an evangelism campaign. I actually have the reference for this. It's in my uh, notes. I can give it to you after the meeting. And when Ellen White and and the brethren were getting ready to do an evangelistic meeting, they went to a building, a place that was used for all sorts of different events. And Sister White said that she went to the people. They talked about it. They negotiated. They said, "Okay, on this date, we're going to go ahead and do ABC evangelism meeting. The person said, sure, no problem. The date finally arrives. The date arrives and people are coming from north, east, south and west, ready to hear the present truth. And when the people arrive to hear the meeting, Sister White and the brethren go in there, some of our pioneers, like a Stephen Haskell, of course, James White. And as they went in, they said, "Okay, we're ready to use the facility. The people will be here shortly and we're going to go ahead and give the message. The gentleman said, I am so sorry. That room is not available to you anymore. She began to reason, wait, we talked about this. We agreed on this. And you know what the person said? The person said, we did talk about it. We did agree about it. But you never signed a contract. And as a result of not signing a contract, someone else came behind you and signed a contract. And therefore, we had to give the room to them. Do you know that Sister White and the pioneers had to go back and tell those people, we are very sorry, there will be no meeting. And those people had to go away. You know what Sister White's conclusion was? She said, well, we have to count this under Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord. What do you think was the good that she learned from it? Next time you go to do a meeting... Sign a contract. In other words, I tell you, these things are practical lessons. What God is trying to teach us is that just because we believe the truth as it is in Jesus does not mean that we should do sloppy business. 
We should be astute. We should, be, we should have forethought. We should think about the things that we negotiate and that we do so that way we can make sure that all of our I's are dotted and all of our T's are crossed. In all things, we can praise God and we can learn lessons from them that make us smarter, stronger, wiser, and better to give excellent service to the master. And so it is that as we looked at these things, I want to show you one more thing that I thought was worthy for us to consider. Obviously, again, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is our text that we've been focusing on throughout our weekend. And when we look at this, I want you to think about that. Isn't that beautiful? That's a nice scenery, isn't it? And here it is that, you know, you've got the rocks, the mountains, and the waters, and the trees, and all these things. Beautiful scenes of nature. And there was a practical lesson about Jesus that I want us to see in this. Notice this. In Mark 1 and verse 35, the Bible says, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there did what? He prayed. Now, notice, Jesus, when it was time for him to pray, it was a great while before day, before the busyness of life. When he went to commune with God, because remember, we learned earlier that the communion life of Jesus was his secret for a life of power. We need more power. We got tremendous talk, but unfortunately, we don't have enough power. And so if we want more power, God has already made the secret aware of us. Now, notice this. He went into a solitary place, a private place, a place without distraction. And he went and he prayed. Now, when I started to think about this a little bit more, I then looked at this principle in Luke 6. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain. That was a kind of solitary place. A mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So notice that the solitary place that Christ was looking to go to, that he could have time with God, was not necessarily a private place in our house or in the house. It was a private place in nature. You will remember that the quote that we read in Ministry Healing, page 51, that it talked about communion with God and with nature. You remember that quote? Jesus made it a practice that as long as it was two things, practical and possible, he would not spend time indoors having communion with God. Listen to my words very carefully. Jesus left a lesson for us. That whenever it's those two words, who remembers the two words? If it's what? Practical and possible. We do not have communion with God indoors. We should look to have our private communion time with God outdoors. God left that on the map on purpose. Notice this. Desire of Ages 291, paragraph 1. By communion with God in nature... The mind is uplifted and the heart finds rest. There is something about being out in nature with God. You know, one of the things I thought was very interesting, I go to a lot of places. I was just, a mar I was just kind of marveling over it. Over the past six months, in six months, I have been at Meet Ministry, helping and strengthening different brethren over there. I then was at Uchi Pines, Helping and strengthening brethren over there. And then I was at Wildwood, helping and strengthening brethren over there. And now I'm at Heartland, 
helping and strengthening the brethren here. And it's interesting because I said, you know, all four locations are in the country, but everybody often will have their communion with God indoors. And I said, why don't you pay attention to the example of Jesus? Why do we think that he's prodigal? Why do we think that it was put in scripture in the spirit of prophecy just so we could just talk about it? God did not put it in inspiration just to talk about it. God put it in inspiration because it was something special in 1 John 2. Go to the book of 1 John and notice what it says in chapter 2. Notice it was not just put there because God just wanted ink to be wasted. It was not just put there so that you and I could just say, huh, that's cute. God put that thing there because Jesus was saying, hey, I'm trying to give you an example that you can learn from it. The Bible says in the book of 1 John, we're looking at what chapter? Very good. We're looking at 1 John. We're looking at chapter 2. And notice what the Bible says as we consider 1 John 2 and verse 6. The Bible says, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Do you see that? Now, when the Bible says that we are to walk as he walked, it didn't say that if Jesus did right foot and then right foot and then left foot and then left. That's not the kind of walking that the Bible was talking about. It's the same kind of walking that Enoch did with God. Enoch walked with God. And he was not. He was translated. Because before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That's the kind of walking. It's about living as he lived, worshiping as he worshiped, studying as he studied, praying as he prayed. And Jesus made it a priority that every time it is practical and possible. You see, if there is a blizzard outside, let me give you an example. I live in the mountains in Massachusetts right now. In the mountains in Massachusetts, where I live, just about two and a half weeks ago, two weeks ago or so, it was negative 31 outside. That's why I don't want to hear nothing from you southern people when y'all start talking about how cold it is. I'm like, give me a break. You're not going to get any sympathy from me. Like, it's five degrees. I'm like, listen, negative 31. It was not practical or possible to have communion outside in the woods. You understand that? Now, let's speak to the South. A tornado comes. Some areas in the South, especially out in Tennessee, where Meat Ministry was and we were living there, sometimes tornadoes will rip through an area. Now, if you clearly see lightning bolts flashing all over the place, it is not practical. And it's not possible for you to go outside and have a good communion with God when you got one eye closed praying and the other eye open looking at the lightning bolts near around you. You're distracted. Do you understand that? So that's what I'm saying when I talk about practical possible. But as long as it's practical, as long as it's possible, we are to say it is time to talk to the master. I'm going out and I'm going to spend some time in nature. And I'm going to commune with my savior. I would like to submit unto you, do it. It was an example that Jesus gave us. I taught it to a whole bunch of missionaries as they were getting ready to go out and do their canvassing group. And when we finished, all of them were getting ready to do it, and they were obedient. And one of them, praise God, was my son. My son, Jared, would get up every morning. He said, Dad, I don't know what it is. He says, all of us, all of the students, all of us, 
because they were all doing a, cam a, a canvassing campaign, and all of them were getting up in the morning, early in the morning, while it was still dark. And they, because they were out there in the, in the woods and in the mountains, they were going places, and they were finding opportunities to talk with the master. And they said, you know what? There is something special about doing this. Now, I'm going to let you in even on a double secret. I mean, we're going to walk in the footsteps of our master. I want you to watch this. Go to Luke 11. Watch this one. I'm going to add this one. This is a bonus. I didn't even have this one prepared for you. But I'm going to go. Yeah, I'll go ahead and give you this one. Watch this one. In Luke, the 11th chapter, I'm going to show you another example about Jesus. Now, you remember, you, you've been hearing me talk about careful study. Is that right? Remember we talked about that? Really paying attention to the verse? I'm going to give you an opportunity. Let's see if you get it. And, you know, it's, it's so sad. Sometimes people give right answers for wrong reasons. You go into Luke 11. I remember one time I was teaching, I was doing a training, and I was training missionaries. And as I was training the missionaries, um, I asked a tough question. And when I asked the tough question, I said, what's the answer? A lot of people didn't give the answer. And this young lady, very timid, she, she raised her hand. She said, I know the answer, Brother Lemon. I said, really? Tell me the answer. The sister gave the right answer. I said, oh, praise God. I said, sister, stand up. I had to stand up before the rest of the class. And I said, look at your fellow classmates. And I said, please tell them how you discovered the answer. I, mean, I was so proud of her. Because, I mean, I was, I was really thankful for what she was able to do. I said, oh, man, she knows the answer. She's been studying. And then that sister, I said, go ahead and tell the class. And then she put her head down. I said, no, don't put your head down. I said, you gave the right answer. Go ahead, tell the class. She said, I learned it from listening to one of your messages. <laughs> that was the right answer, but the wrong way it was discovered. You understand that? We want to be able to say, I, I got the answer because I, I looked and I studied for myself. You understand that? That's the best answer, okay? Luke 11, bonus. Watch this example of Jesus, Luke 11. The Bible says in verse 1, and it came to pass that as he was doing what? Praying. Praying in a certain place. When he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. All right. Well, what do the people, what do the disciples want to learn? They want to learn how to pray. What was Jesus doing? And before the disciples asked the question, what did Jesus, what, what, what happened with Jesus and his prayer? It stopped. So clearly, was Jesus, okay, let me not ask that question just yet. Verse 2. Jesus is now going to answer their question. They want to learn how to pray. Verse 2. And he said unto them, when ye pray, say our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Stop right there. Question. What's the first lesson that Jesus taught about how to pray? What's the first lesson Jesus taught? Say again that you what? Pray, say, pray to the Father. Pray to the Father. Very good. My sister got it. Say it, sister. He prayed out loud. Notice in the verse, it did not say 
when ye pray, think. That's not what he said, did he? He didn't say that. He did not say, when ye pray, meditate. He said, when you pray, say. Jesus was teaching us, when you pray, pray audibly. Pray audibly. Now, you can couple this with Steps to Christ, page 93. When you get a chance, you read it in your spare time. Steps to Christ, page 93. And you will learn that what God actually teaches us is that when we pray, pray aloud. Somebody says, oh, man, I don't know. Should I do that? Well, the devil will hear me. Who cares if he hears us? He can't do anything about it. Seriously, I think about that with fanatical country living people. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not going to say the name, but years ago, I, I, I asked a brother who was living in the country, helping people to learn how to live in the country. I said, hey, uh, can you give me a call? Left a voice message. He called me back. I noticed that there was a, uh, no, I sent him an email. Can you give me a call? Got a, you know, blocked caller ID number that called me. And I answered the phone. It was that guy. And I said, hey, brother, um, can I call you back? You called me at a bad time. Well, brother, I don't give out my phone number. Really? I said, why you don't give out your phone number? I mean, we're brethren. He said, well, you know, some, the, the, the Lord tells us that a time's going to come where we're going to turn against brethren. <laughs> you know, I wish I was joking. Because that's a pathetic thing for a man to say that claims the present truth. But extremists are very much attracted to the present truth, to mess it up all the time. And this brother, well, brother, you know, brethren are going to turn against us, so what I'll do is I'll call you back. That is so extreme. But these were the same people at a time that used to say, get a P.O. box address when you get your country place. Don't let nobody know where you live. And I'm like, you know, people always knew where to find Jesus. You read Mark 1, verse 36. It, they knew where to find him. They knew where to find him. Jesus didn't have to hide. You see, here's, my, here's the way I think about it. If you show up at my house and you trying to mess with me and my family, God, if you're God's enemy, that means you're my enemy. God will blind your eyes like he did with those people right at Lot's door. Do you understand that? I don't have to be worried about folks. Enoch always brought people to his country home. We don't need to hide. And so it is we don't need to only pray quietly. There's nothing in inspiration that says there's a danger when we pray openly. How do I know that? Because Jesus just did it. He was praying aloud. And then he stopped and the disciples knew it. And then they asked the question. So if Jesus prayed aloud and he didn't worry about it, why are you worried about it? Even if the devil hears you, he can't do anything about it. You understand that? Psalms 55 and verse 17, evening, morning and at noon will I pray and cry how the Bible teaches us pray aloud. You know, one of the blessings of praying aloud, God becomes more real to you. I mean, think about it. You go outside in nature. You are out there breathing that crisp air. Maybe you're in an area where you hear the water flowing. You hear the sounds of nature, the birds chirping because they're being blessed by God. And here it is that you're surrounded by all of that. 
And then here it is that you are upon your knees and you are lifting up your heart to heaven. And you begin to say, Father. And you start to talk out loud. Brothers and sisters, your own mind becomes convinced that God is real. You see, when you and I pray silently and we do the silent thing, one minute, oh, Lord, next minute. What time is it? Oh, man, I got to go do grocery shopping. Oh, man, I got to do that. Is it not almost very easy for our minds to wonder when we silently pray? Jesus was teaching us. He knows you become more convinced that I'm real the more that you talk to me. I want you to have something to say to me. And so I'm encouraging you that when you have your communion time with God, as long as it's practical and possible, go outside. Now, for those of us who are coming from the city, obviously we are challenged, aren't we? Now, if you're in the city but in the suburbs, you at least probably have a backyard, something like that, that you can go ahead and do it. Well, praise the Lord. Go in your backyard and do it then. Work with what you got until you can get more. If you're living in an apartment building structure and there's cars passing all the time and it's noisy outside, well, then obviously you can't put this into practice yet. So you might have to just simply go in your closet and say, Father, I'm doing the best that I can until I get more. But the ideal of God is try to find yourself a quiet place in nature and commune with the master. Is that simple enough? Amen. Now. Looking at some more instructions, some more examples from Jesus. You'll remember in Acts 10 and verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And what was he doing? He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. This is our work, family. There's no way we're going to prepare ye the way of the Lord while we're constantly thinking about ourselves, working for ourselves and doing for ourselves. We must understand that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power, and he went about doing good. If we are going to prepare ye the way of the Lord, we have to sit down and we got to think, how can I be more intentional about going about and doing good to others? What has God given me that can be a blessing to others? Even to the homeschooling parents. Many of you are in this room. Read Welfare Ministry, page 120. When you read Welfare Ministry, page 120, it tells us that even that homeschooling mother, that she is to train her children to be helpers to her as she does evangelism. So there's no excuse to just say, well, my flock right here is my ministry. Well, that's true. It's just not supposed to be your only ministry. You're supposed to have a focus that when I train my children, I am training them to be a helper to me as we win souls for the master and prepare the way. See how simple that is? So we must sit down and really think about it. How can I go about doing good? What do I have that's good that you gave me, Lord, that I can give to somebody else? Some of us have a knowledge on health. Some of us have a knowledge on cooking. Some of us have a knowledge on various practical skills, carpentry, cleaning, etc. Some of us are very knowledgeable on budgeting and financing, which a lot of people need. What is it that you have that's good? Take it, pray about it, and go Do that good thing for somebody else that's near you, that's around you. You must be intentional. Hear me, good family. There's always going to be a reason to say, I'll do it tomorrow. Procrastination is one of the devil's next rustiest tools when you think about discouragement. That's probably his number one tool is discouragement. But procrastination is real close to it. 
We often know what to do. We often have skill sets, abilities, and all sorts of gifts, but we waste a lot of time thinking about it rather than putting it into action. Jesus went about doing good, healing all manner, uh, healing those uh, who were oppressed of the devil, and God was with him. Now, notice this. That was Jesus. Luke 9. What did Jesus do for the disciples? Then he called his 12 and disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. The same power that was available to Jesus is the same power that has been made available to us. And God says, I want you to use that power. And you can. I, you know, I believe this family. And, and, you know, in truth, it's really nothing to boast about. But, you know, the man that stands before you has, as it relates to education, a general equivalency diploma. A GED. According to the world's standard, I'm a very dumb, ignorant man. According to the world's standard. And so I always deemed myself an underdog. Literally, I deemed that. I had people that called me names. I had people, even in our church, that told me, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to understand anything, etc. I came into the church 20, wow, <laughs> 26 years ago. And, you know, and I, and I came in, I didn't even understand where Genesis was. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like I did not understand these things. And so it is that what did I have to do? I started to study. I had to apply myself. People told me about Oakwood. Oh, you need to go to Oakwood. You need to go to Oakwood. Something, I believe, is the Holy Spirit, kept me from going. I said, no, no, no. That, no that's, that, it, wasn't, it wasn't where God wanted to send me. And brethren would say, oh, man, you need to learn this. You need to learn this. And I had to read. I had to pray. I had to study. I had to think. I had to get all those cobwebs off my brain from smoking on weed and sipping some foolish substance and making my body sick and all these things. Started learning a health message. There's one of the people right here that helped me learn it, Sister Hamilton. Started learning the health message, health reform and all these things. Started learning these things. And then here it is. The Lord gave a ministry, a worldwide ministry, still have a GED. All I'm saying, I'm not saying that to impress you. I'm, trying, I'm, I'm saying that to impress upon you that you don't need a lot of stuff that the world tells you you need to understand the word of God, to be able to let it have its sanctifying effect upon your heart and actually be used as an instrument by God to be a blessing to somebody else. According to the world standard, I'm a very, very ignorant fisherman. But God has used this ignorant fisherman to teach a lot of people a lot of things that has absolutely worked out for their salvation. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And what I'm telling you is that do not look to your deficiencies. Do not consult your weaknesses. There is no mind too dull that God cannot make brilliant. You have to start believing that. You got to think that. Stop talking that foolishness of I can't. Lord, how can I? Just switch the, switch the language. It's not I can't do that. Lord. The question is, Lord, okay, how can I do that? You want me to do that? How can I do that? Father, if you want me to do that, then I'm going to need this. And God says, I love it. Do you know that Desire of Ages 668 tells us that God loves it when we go to him and make demands? 
to say, Lord, in order for me to accomplish this, I need this. You promised this, and therefore I'm coming to you, and I'm asking. I'm not talking about Pentecostal demands. I command you to obey me, Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that extremism, Babylonian foolishness. I'm talking about reverently coming to God and saying, Father, you said in your word, Daddy, it's like, Daddy, you promised. And therefore, I come to you fully expecting you to fulfill your promise. God says, I like it when my children do that. Hold me accountable to my promise. God will make your mind brilliant. God will teach you what you need to know. God will literally, like the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, filled with paganism. And God will give you skill to know how to even build a sanctuary. God will do that. All he needs is willing hearts. And so we can go about doing good just like Jesus did. All we got to do is say, Lord, show me how. I am here. Send me. Use me. Now, let's talk about being used. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. What springs constantly from within your heart? If helping yourself out springs constantly from within your heart, then you need to cry out to God and say, Lord, help me. I'm a selfish man. I'm a selfish woman. I'm self-centered, Lord. Help me that I can get to a place that when I see people, that my heart naturally leaps to say, how can I be a blessing, Father? How can I help them? You know, sometimes with these country locations, especially schools, you know, these young people get caught up into these little bubbles and they don't know how to even act out in real society. And that's why I believe any school, no matter what it is, every school should be able to engage our youth to go out into cities and, and all the slums and wicked places of the world and go out there and meet the real needs of people and come in contact with all of those various battles and challenges and learn how to walk through them through some godly examples in the context of teachers and professors and leaders. We need that. Because sometimes we get locked in these bubbles. Same thing with homeschooling children. They homeschool all their lives. Don't always get in touch with society. Once they come out in touch with society, they lose their minds. They literally lose their minds. I mean, me, me and my buddies back in the days, we used to always say when I was in the world, we said, look, if you want to have a good time, go find one of them, them Christian girls that's always been locked up in their home. This is what we used to say as worldly wicked men. We used to say that. Go find them Christian girls that's been locked up in their homes because once they get out of their homes, they can't wait to just test and see what the waters are like. And they do some of the most vile and sinful things. Part of that comes because of the way that some of us are governing our youth. You understand that? We need to know how to wisely and temperately be able to help them see the realities of what's happening outside of this precious little holy home that we have so that when they come back home, they'll appreciate that home more. Son and daughter, we're going to go to ABC, you know, ghetto. We're going to go to the hood. We're going to go to places where people are struggling and we're going to go and we're going to minister to those souls. And when they go in there and see the roaches crawling across the floor, when they go in there and smell those foul smells, when they go in there and they look in that person's refrigerator and they see that that person is eating bona fide garbage. When they see those individuals who are struggling and you're teaching the word of God and they're, they're struggling to even think through a simple text. That normally the child takes for granted. When that child sees all of that, bring them back home and say, well, you think about what you saw today. You're going to hear a lot of those children say, 
I didn't realize how blessed we are. It's like, yeah, you are. Because you know what a lot of children are saying right now? They're so blessed. Those folks in the world are so blessed. That's why we want to be like them. So a lot of our young people are saying right now. They don't understand the gifts that they have. They don't understand what it's like to have a mother and a father who loves Jesus and who actually says it's time for morning worship. It's time for midday prayer. It's time for evening devotion. It's time to eat our breakfast and everything is whole food and CDF approved. You know, CDF approved stands for Councils on Diets and Foods approved. (laughs) Everything they eat is CDF approved. Is that right, Benia? That's when those children say, you know what? Thank you for making those whole grain pancakes, Mom. I don't want to know what IHOP has. But when they get locked up in that bubble, they they, they think, well, and and they start losing their minds. So the key is, is that God says, listen, I want my people to develop a burden and we can go to Jesus with this. We can say, Lord, give me a burden for souls. You can pray. You can observe carefully. But God makes it clear. I want my character to be reflected in you. And the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. That's what God wants. And it's also a nice little sign. When you get to a place that you start thinking so much about people, you start thinking so little about yourself that you start downsizing. Start selling stuff. Start taking those nice shoes and suits. And sometimes you'll say, you know what? I want to go bless somebody with this. It's nice when God gets your heart to that place. It's a blessing. And so as we think about this, I want to walk us through something here. You see, this is what God wants if we're going to truly prepare ye the way. We must start thinking, how can I go about and do good? So now what happens is everything is a means to an end. My study time, my devotion time is equipping me that I can meet other people and clearly and powerfully articulate the loving words of Jesus to them. My communion time with God in the morning is to give me wherewithal that I know how to deal with the various battles of life that might come from husband, wife, children, and certainly those outside of my home. And I will know how to speak a good word as meat in due season. Becomes a means to an end. Even our devotional time is not just for us to just simply say, praise the Lord, I had a great devotion today. Even our devotional time is to build us up that we can better know how to minister to others. The early Seventh-day Adventist church grew with such rapidity that to date it has not been repeated. To date. When you study our church right from about the 1870s to about 1905, 1908, the Seventh-day Adventist church grew approximately 400%. 400%. And we were not growing like the way some churches grow today. It's not like just making numbers. No, no, no. We were making disciples back then. Back in those days, the Seventh-day Adventist was one to be feared. You don't mess with a Seventh-day Adventist unless you know what you're talking about. 
It was understood. If you come in contact with even a common member of the Seventh-day Adventist church, that when you start asking all your questions, those Seventh-day Adventist members were able to say, thus saith the Lord. Notice what the Bible says right here. And they were able to walk you through scripture. We were a teaching church. We were a teaching church. We've never seen that kind of growth ever, even all the way here now in 2018. Never seen it. And so it is that what was it that caused such rapid growth? Now watch this. In the Bible, I'm going to give you some examples. What was it that caused such rapid growth in our movement back then? Well, let me go ahead and share some things with you. Number one, the Bible says in the book of Acts 14 in verse 23, and when they had ordained them elders in how many churches? Every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So what was established in the early church? There were these elders. Now watch this. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the who? Elders of the church. Now watch this. The elders. It says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you what? Overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. According to the Bible, who were the overseers of the church? It was elders. It was elders. That's why in the New Testament, you only find the word pastor come up once. A pastor, by the way, in the Greek, under shepherd. An elder, by the way, in the Greek, under shepherd. Pastors and elders were very much synonymous in Scripture. It was was an interchanging of terms. But they all meant the same thing. Literally, when you look up the word overseer, in the Greek it means bishop. It was an under-shepherd. Someone who was looking over the flock. So, in truth, elders are like pastors. You understand that? You see, today we live in a whole different system. So what happens is if you call somebody pastor, you know, we're correcting ourselves. Oh, sorry, not pastor. Elder. And the act. But in today's society where there's a lot of accolade and all this other stuff connected to these terms, you know, people are getting mad and, and, you know, whatever. I don't care what you call me. I mean, at the end of the day, like my sister Vanessa says, just call me what Jesus calls me. My name is Dwayne and I'm your brother. That's it. I never forgot that. Call me what Jesus calls me. I like that. God is simply trying to say to us that when the early church started, it was the elders who were running the church wasn't pastors. Pastors were not locating themselves and hovering over the churches. That's not what was happening. You know, the people who functioned like the pastors were the people like the Pauls. They were like the Barnabas. They were like the Silas. These were the individuals who sooner functioned in the capacity that if we were to call them a term, we would say they were pastors. Now, what was Paul doing? He was traveling and going about and starting other churches. What was Barnabas doing? He was traveling and going about and starting other churches. Was Paul keeping in touch with the other churches? Sure he was. He'd write letters. Today we got email. Write a letter. How's everything going? Everybody's doing all right? Sometimes Paul would say, hey, I heard that this was happening in the church of Corinth. Let me go ahead and send a word of admonishment. But Paul trusted those elders. Take care of that flock. You are the overseers of the flock. Now, this was what we call the biblical model. Elders run the church. Pastors go as missionaries. (laughs) 
You want to know why we grew at 400%? I'm answering the question. It was understood. Elders run the church, pastors go out as missionaries. Now, the Seventh-day Baptists interviewed the Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh-day Baptists interviewed the Seventh-day Adventists because they wanted to understand, why are you growing so fast? We were growing so fast, we got the attention of other denominations. Other denominations were calling us, reaching out to us and saying, please help us understand, why are you growing so fast? Obviously, because they wanted to learn how could they do the same thing. Here was the answer. All Seventh-day Adventist clergymen are what? Missionaries, not what? Located pastors and are busy doing what? Preaching, teaching, and organizing churches the world over. That's what our pastors were doing in the days of our pioneers. They were busy preaching, teaching, and organizing churches the world over. That's what our pastors were doing. Continuing, there was a secular news article. I mean, this is sweet. I love this history. This is sweet. Secular news article. The secular news article. In other words, secular media started saying, hey, Seventh day Adventists, y'all are growing so fast, we want to know why. So we weren't just getting the attention of the religious world, we were getting attention of the secular world. In the Plain Dealer, a news article, newspaper, here's what they've, this, this is the article. Some facts and figures gathered from Elder Starr. He was a regional conference president. It says, some facts and figures gathered from Elder Starr, how they've grown in 40 years and what they believe. Question, by what means have you carried forward your work so rapidly? Well, in the first place, replied the elder, we have what? No settled pastors. Our churches are taught largely to do what? Take care of themselves. And while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. It was understood because it was the biblical model. This is a no-brainer. This was the biblical model. Elders run the church. Pastors go as missionaries and preach and teach and organize churches. It was understood. Continuing. The Kalamazoo Telegraph. I mean, I'm showing you this on purpose. I want you to see this is real stuff. This is real history. Kalamazoo Telegraph, another secular article, secular news. Kenwright, you heard of D.M. Kenwright, haven't you? Forgive me for that small text. I try to make all my text big, but nevertheless, D.M. Kenwright, phenomenal evangelist, but he turned away from the church. But listen to this. It says, in the quotation taken from the Kalamazoo Telegraph, we find this statement. At the time, he dissolved his connection with them. In other words, D.M. Kenwright dissolved his connection with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It says when he did that, it says he had the charge of 18 churches in Michigan. One pastor overseeing 18 churches. It says uh, right here, 18 churches in Michigan. The fact in this case are these. Seventh-day Adventist churches maintain their regular worship with the assistance of any located pastors, leaving our entire ministry free to act as evangelists in new fields. George Butler, conference president. In other words, all I'm simply showing you, I'm just showing you article after article after article. They were making it plain this was something that was understood. Now, if we want to see this type of fire come back in the movement, then we need to come back to the philosophies that governed the movement during that time. Now, 
This is, uh, let me go past that, Ellen White. They all said the same thing. Ellen White said the same thing. Our ministers are not to hover over the churches, regarding the churches in some particular place as their special care. And our churches should not feel jealous and neglected if they do not receive ministerial labor. They should themselves take up the burden and labor most earnestly for souls. Believers are to have root in themselves, striking firm root in Christ, that they may bear fruit to his glory. Now, I do need to show you this. A.G. Daniels, he also was a conference president. Look at what A.G. Daniels said. I have to show this to you. He literally spoke of the same context of what we're talking about, but look at what he said. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. In some of the very large churches, we have elected pastors, but as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. Now, here's what he said as a conference president. And I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement, when we cease our forward movement work and begin to settle over our churches to stay by them and do their thinking and their praying and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and to lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on a retreat. He said, this is what will happen if we start having ministers that are just hovering over the churches. So point number one, this would be something to the ministers in the room or to some of you theology students that if you were to go into pastoral ministry, I would say to you as students in theology that you make sure that if you do lead a church, that you lead it the way God said it should be led. Now, what were the church members doing since they were taking care of themselves? Notice. It says, one of the first place replied the elder, we have no settled pastors. Our churches are taught largely to take care of themselves, while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. In the winter, they go into the church's halls or schoolhouse and raise up believers. So notice the three locations that they would go into. Churches, halls, those are kind of like theaters, different places that you can rent out. And, they, and by the way, they were always nice. If you carefully study our history, we never rented out junk. We didn't rent out broke places and was trying to broke down places and, and trying to spend the littlest amount. No, the brethren put money into getting a nice facility, making sure that the people who come were comfortable, the room was well lit, etc. Then it says they would go to churches, halls, or schoolhouses and raise up believers. It says in the summer we use tents. Some of us don't even know what a tent meeting is anymore. It says they would use tents, pitching them in the cities and villages where we teach the people these doctrines. This year, we'll have about 100 tents. They were not playing. Oh, it gets deeper than that. Watch this. Look at this one right here. It says, besides these, we send out large numbers of call porters. The conference was sending out large numbers of call porters. Some conferences have dissolved the publishing department. But this is what they were doing. We sent out large numbers of call porters with our tracts and books. So notice, the call porters took tracts and books. Then it says, who visit the families and teach them the Bible. Last year, we employed, I like that word. They employed. See, the brethren invested in the workers in the church. 
They said we employed about 125 cold porters in this manner. Bible readings or Bible studies. Bible readings is another class of work. The workers go from house to house holding Bible readings with from one to 20 individuals. So literally the members of the church were going house to house doing Bible studies. This is what you and I are supposed to be doing. I'm trying to give you a practical, beautiful picture of this is how we were growing at such rapid paces back in our history. It says last year they gave 10,000 of such Bible readings. At the same time, we had employed 300 canvassers. What's the difference between the canvasser and the call porter? Notice, we employed 300 canvassers constantly canvassing the country and selling our larger works. So the call porters would do the tracks in the books, the little things. But the canvassers were trained specifically how to get the larger materials out. It was very organized. Very organized. And we need to understand that the way, and I would imagine that you do this here at, at, at Heartland. I would imagine you're doing that. That the number one way to support the school, according to inspiration, was to go out and sell the book Christ Object Lessons. And all the funds that would come from Christ Object Lessons were supposed to help support the school. We have a sanitarium on this campus, don't we? What was the number one book we were supposed to sell to support the sanitarium? Ministry of Healing. You see, God will bless when we do what he says. He'll bless when we do what he says. Ministry of healing, sales come from it, supports the sanitarium. Christ object lessons, the sales that come from it will support the school. And you'd be amazed. We don't have to do a lot of gimmicks and stuff where we start getting ourselves in trouble. Compromising principles and standards. God says, just do what I told you to do. So these are things that they were doing. Look at this. In addition to this, every church has a missionary society. Now, I could really go into this one. How many of you have ever heard of AYS? You ever heard of AYS? Adventist Youth Society. A lot of times it is merely edutainment. A lot of times that's what that's what an average AYS is. It's just edutainment. We're educating ourselves with entertainment. But before AYS. There was something called MV, missionary volunteer. Those young people were trained to go into the fields and to have their friends and associates come back and they would teach and instruct the word and individuals were winning souls. MV was a soul winning effort in comparison to what's typically held as AYS. Okay. Now, understanding these things, look at this. Every one of these members does more or less missionary work, such as selling books, loaning or giving away tracts, obtaining subscriptions to our periodicals, visiting families, and looking after the poor and aiding the sick. The bottom line I'm trying to say is that the members of our church were very, very busy. Pastor hovering over them to tell them what to do. It was a systematic understanding. Now, in order for this to be done, my brothers and sisters, we have to remember, and whatsoever you do, do it how? Heartily. Do it with the whole heart as unto the Lord. You see, when you work for Jesus, you don't give him no sloppy work. You understand that? I'm very serious. We're talking about excellence. Jesus makes it clear. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. There's a lot of things that when we make promises to people, we will break it and sometimes we don't even care. But we promised. I don't care. I got to do what I got to do. 
Jesus says, do not treat me like you treat other men. Jesus says, whatever you do, I want you to do it with your whole heart. As if you're doing it for me. As if you're doing it for me. Five more minutes. I want you to want, no, I'm, I, want, I want to respect the time, but it's just challenging. So here's the deal. Number one, the study of the word. To go forward with excellence, we must start studying our Bibles. What do I mean by this? I want you to think about this, okay? With excellence. The Bible says study to show thyself approved unto God. Okay? Study to show thyself approved. Don't be sloppy, please. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Workmen that need not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Study, family. What does it involve in studying? Well, it's right in the verse. Rightly divide the word of truth. How do you rightly divide the word of truth? Very simple. Notice this. The study of the Bible demands our most diligent effort and persevering thought. Now, notice that. What should get our most diligent effort and persevering thought? The Bible. You know, some of us do that with money. Sometimes when we do money and budgeting, we are on those books with a, hey, hey, where'd that penny go? I want to know where every penny went. Some of us give persevering thought to how we manage our money. But when we study the Bible, sometimes we're sloppy. We're not giving careful thought. And so inspiration says very clearly, the study of the Bible demands our most diligent effort and persevering thought. As the miner digs for the golden treasure in the earth, so earnestly, persistently must we seek for the treasure of God's word. Now, how do I do that? In daily study, the verse-by-verse method is often most helpful. Let's stop right there. When you study the Bible, if I could leave you with one gem, there are many beautiful principles of studying the Bible, but if I could leave you with this one gem, when you study the Bible, I'm encouraging you to go verse-by-verse. And what I'm encouraging you to do is do exactly what this quote says. Notice what the quote says. It says, let the student take one verse. How many verses? One verse. Take one verse and concentrate the mind on ascertaining the thought that God has put into that verse for him. This is, I mean, this is very practical instruction. Take one verse. Concentrate the mind. Now, notice this. Take one verse, concentrate the mind on ascertaining the thought that God has put into the verse for him, and then dwell upon the thought until it becomes your own. In other words, don't move from the verse until you understand it. Too often, we read a ton of verses where we're like, clueless, 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 clueless. Oh, okay, I understand that one. Clueless, clueless, clueless. That's how a lot of us read the verses. We're clueless. We're like, I don't know what that verse is saying. I don't know what that verse is saying. And I don't know what that verse is saying. But I know what that one verse is saying right there. And then we got the nerve to tell people, oh, yeah, I studied, I studied the whole chapter. God says, no, when you study the verse, take one verse, look at the verse, think about the verse. Lord, what, is, what are you saying in that verse that is not only the truth, but is also the truth that is applicable to me in my life and my circumstance? Study it and don't move from it until you grab it. Then it says one passage thus studied until its significance is clear is of more value than the perusal of many chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gained. So what God is simply saying is that when you study your Bible, you got to look at it prayerfully and carefully. Don't run past the verse. It makes no sense to rush through Bible study. It is illogical. 
It makes more sense to say, I'm going to study this verse, and I'm not moving from the verse until I understand what the verse is talking about. If it means i got to go through five history books so that I can say, I know exactly what that verse is talking about. Because let me tell you something. When you study a book, when you study a chapter, or even when you study a passage of scripture, when you understand what it's saying, you walk different. You literally think different. You handle yourself differently. Because you literally can say, I know what the word of God says on that subject. You have no idea how many people are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine right now. Because they don't know what the text says. They don't know what the verses are saying. God is trying to help us understand that you don't have to be moved like that. Now, some people are unmovable in ignorance. That's nothing to boast about. Some people are like, I was born seven-day Adventist. I'm going to die seven-day Adventist. But then you say, what is a seven-day Adventist? They're like, I don't know, but I'm born a seven-day Adventist. I'm going to die a seven-day Adventist. (laughs) We are seven-day Adventist Roman Catholics. You understand that? That's what some of us are, just, just SDA Roman Catholic. I, born, I don't know what I believe. I cannot substantiate where I stand. The prophet of God says it very simply in volume 5, page 707. She says there are many who profess to have a knowledge of present truth, but they really don't know what they believe because they don't understand the evidences of their faith. I ask you, what do you believe? You give me an answer. I say, where's your evidence? And some of us don't know where to go. But I'm born a seven-day Adventist. I'm going to die a seven-day Adventist. You understand that? God says, no, no, no. God says, listen, don't, there's nothing boastful about being unmovable in ignorance. God says, I want you to know what you believe. Because when you know what you believe, there's a comfort. There's a peace. There is a wherewithal in the character. I am serious when I said it. It makes you walk different. You, 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 you ever seen a person walk and they look like they got confidence? The Bible says this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we have anything, if we have, how does it go? And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will. Sometimes you got to sing the scripture song to get it back. <laughs> but that's the key, is that God is saying that to you. He says, I want you to be confident because it will affect your whole lifestyle. Do you understand that? Now, in this study, we have to understand some principles. John 5 and verse 39. I want to show you something of why it's so important for us to study properly. So go to John, the fifth chapter. We're going to consider the 39th verse. Let me get my Bible. I left it right here. John 5 and verse 39. What does Jesus say in John 5 and verse 39? He says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which do what? Testify Testify of me. When you study the Bible... Look for Jesus. Don't just look at what Daniel said. Don't just look at what Jeremiah said. Don't just look at what anybody said. Somewhere in those verses, look for where did I learn something about the the character of Christ? You will find that that's one of the formulas for victory over sin. Did you know that? Desire of Ages, page 668 says, when we know God as it is our privilege to know him, Our lives will be a life of continual obedience and through an appreciation of the character of Christ and through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. Literally, the more I understand God's character, sin becomes hateful to me. You understand that? And I can relate because back in the days when I used to dance and when I used to party and club and all of that other stuff, I was what the world calls a player. One of those guys who was unfaithful, could not be with one person and would go ahead and move around from person to person. 
One day I met that wonderful woman, Alexandra. And here it is that when I met Alexandra, we fell in love. Jesus' love was in our hearts. And we got married May 25th, 1997. And when I married that wonderful lady, my love deepened and deepened and deepened and deepened. And what I had with her is similar to the experience of conversion. You remember what Jesus said? He said, the wind blows where it listed. You don't know when it came or when it goes, but you know that it was there. And he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. My brothers and sisters, I never paid it. I never sat down and said, I must not cheat on my wife. I must not cheat on my wife. I must not cheat on my wife. I never said anything like that. It was the love that I had for my wife and the love that I had for my God that kept me from doing anything minutely close to that. And it was something that was a natural byproduct of being in love with my precious bride from my side. And what God is saying is he says, so it is with us when we walk with him. We will get to that place that if we're studying scripture with the deliberate intent, where am I learning about God's character? What am I learning about God's character in these verses that I'm reading? This is how you will begin falling in love with him. Because Jesus says, I'm all over the text. You understand that? I'm all over the text. So that's point number two. When you study the Bible, study verse by verse. Don't move from the verse until you understand the verse. Point number two, whatever verses you study in the Bible, look for Jesus. Look for his character. What am I learning about the character of Christ through this? This is how you'll move from being a typical SDA, and this is how you'll also move from doing typical SDA evangelism. Sometimes all we want to do is show people the state of the dead, but God says there's a lot more that I want to show through that doctrine. I want to reveal my character through that doctrine. So don't just do textbook evangelism where we just prove the Sabbath is the seventh day or whatever. Show God's character calling us into his rest when we study the Sabbath. Show God's character when you're warning the people about the dangers of spiritualism and the state of the dead. Show God's character, theology majors. That's what God wants you to do. Show my character through the doctrine, not merely the doctrine. Your teachings will have so much more power, so much more power when you study like this. And so this is what God wants. Now, let's go ahead and go a step deeper in this. Jesus told us to search the scriptures, didn't he? You want to know why Jesus told us to search the scriptures? Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. Watch this. Every position of truth taken by our people will bear the criticism of the greatest minds. The highest of the world's great men will be brought in contact with truth. And therefore, every position we take should be critically examined and tested by the scriptures. Now we seem to be unnoticed, but this will not always be. We are getting ready to come in contact with the world's greatest mind. We're getting ready to come in contact with the world's greatest men. And there are two ways that you can come in contact with the world's greatest minds and the world's greatest men. Let me show you. Go to Proverbs 18. In Proverbs 18, notice what the Bible says, Proverbs 18. How are we going to come in contact with the world's greatest minds and the world's greatest men? Proverbs 18. Notice what the Bible says, Proverbs. We're going to the 18th chapter. 
And I want you to consider what the verse says in verse 16. Proverbs 18 and verse 16. Watch the text. The Bible says in Proverbs 18. Are we there? The Bible says in Proverbs 18 and verse 16, it says a man's gift will do what? It makes room for him and will put him before what kind of people? And it will put him before great men. One of the ways that we're going to come in contact with the world's greatest minds and the world's greatest men is through the gifts God has given you. You see, again, our study this evening is on excellence. We don't do what we do as if we're working for men. We do what we do as if we're doing it for Christ himself. And as a result of that, whatever we do, we do it with excellence. When we function with excellence, if you're a farmer, you should function with excellence. If you are tilling that soil, I've seen some pretty horrible looking gardens. I mean, it just looked like somebody got vision problems. I mean, it's just crooked. It's just all over the place and just messed up. It's bushy. It got weeds all over here and weeds all over here. It's a, God says that that is not the way I've instructed my workers to work. Weeds are synonymous to sinners and sin. And God says, I don't want that in the midst of my garden. And so it is that we need to know when I do a garden, it needs to be lined up right. It needs to be weed free. It needs to be able to have fruit that's growing from those trees or whatever the product is. And it should be growing with high level nutrition. Excellence. It does not matter what you're doing. If you're a mathematician, if you're a teacher, if you are a truck driver, if you are an accountant, it does not matter what you do. Excellence is what God expects from every single one of us. And so it is that he says, when it comes to my teachings and my word, he says, I want you to understand that sooner or later, as you function in excellence, those gifts I gave you are going to make room for you and it's going to put you before great men so you can be my witnesses, Daniel. Daniel ended up before a great man. His parents were faithful. Parents, that's another thing we need to keep in mind. Another reason why we don't want to half step on our education with our children is because we don't understand who our children, if the Lord should so tarry, they may end up before others. And we want them to be an excellent example before those that they come in contact with. Some of you are doing very well as writers, as teachers, as organizers, whatever it is that you do, and you're going to be brought before great people that make powerful decisions. And God says, when those opportunities come, I expect you to know how to give a word that is meat in due season. That's one way you'll come before great men. What's the other way you'll come before great men? Go to Matthew 10. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, Another way that we will come before great men. Notice what the Bible says. Matthew, we're looking at the 10th chapter. What is another way that the Bible shows that we will come before great men? The Bible says in Matthew, the 10th chapter, and when you get there, let me know by saying amen. Verse 16. In Matthew 10 and verse 16, what's another way that we'll be brought before great men? Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues and ye shall be brought before who? Governors and who else? Kings. Are those great men? 
You better believe it. It says, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Another way that will be brought before great men is through persecution. Persecution. Some of us are going to be brought before great men because of our gifts and our favorable, excellent way of exercising those gifts. Some of us are going to be brought before great men as a result of being faithful to God and suffering persecution. I think about a man who wrote a wonderful book. How many of you are familiar with a book called I Will Die Free? How many of you are familiar with that book? That man, Noble Alexander, you know, I met him. I met him and shook his hands. And you got to understand it was a privilege to shake his hands. Because if you read the book, you remember that he ended up going into prison. What was he doing? He was being faithful. He was preaching the gospel in Cuba. He was preaching the gospel. It was not allowed. He did it anyhow on his way home. Cops stopped him, changed his life forever. He ended up going to prison. But through that whole experience, he was able to minister to so many people that in any other case, he would have never come in contact with. The reason it was a privilege to shake his hand is because in the story, it says at one time they came to kill some of the prisoners. And when they came in to kill the prisoners, they came in with guns and began to shoot at the prisoners. And he lifted up his hands. And when he lifted up his hands, the gun hit his hands, the bullets hit his hand and shot his fingers off. He saw his fingers on the the ground with blood, picked up his fingers and said, in the name of Jesus, and put each of his fingers back on his hand. So when that man came to my church in New York City, I said, can I please see your hand? And he gladly said, and he gave me his hand. One of his fingers was like crooked. I mean, it was just amazing. I said, "Bro, I I thank God I could even shake the hand of where a miracle took place. He was such a humble, nice man. God says, listen, sometimes you'll be brought before great men because of persecution. This is why, again, we can praise God even when we go through these vicious trials because we know he's already waited, he's already calculated it, and he has already seen the good that will come out of it as I remain faithful. Inspiration says, search those scriptures. The reason I need you to search those scriptures is because you're going to come in contact with the world's greatest minds and the world's greatest men. And I wonder what these people are going to do when we come in contact with them. Notice, it says, movements are at work to bring us to the front. Now watch this. And if our theories of truth can be picked to pieces by historians or the world's greatest men, it will be done. We must how? individually know for ourselves what is truth and be prepared to give a reason of the hope that we have with meekness and fear, not in the proud, boasting self-sufficiency, but with the spirit of Christ. We are nearing the time when we shall stand how? Individually alone to answer for our belief. This is why you got to push yourself. When you study the Bible, you got to push yourself. You got to say, I'm not moving from the text. Man, this is getting my mind tired. I've been in the same verse for like two days. That's all right. You take as many days as you need. Don't move from the text until you understand the text. 
You might have to pull out various history books. You might have to pull out the Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic lexicon. You may have to pull out whatever you got to pull out, but pull it out and don't move until you understand that verse. And when you understand that verse, then you can move to the next verse. And the reason you're doing it is because, number one, you can understand it. Number two, I can better teach it and share it with others. Because one day I'm going to come in contact with some people that, if possible, they're going to try to pick the pieces what I believe. Ellen White made the same point again in volume 5707. She said there are many people who are confused. They have confused ideas of what constitutes truth. And she says, and when we stand single and alone, she says, we will be surprised how much we don't understand. This is what I'm saying to each and every one of you. I'm telling you. And I, and I put people through these exercises all the time. I'm like, okay, explain this Bible verse. And I'll, I'll give a simple Bible verse that I would think in my mind, I'm like, you should be able to understand this with no problem. You believe in righteousness by faith? You believe in this? Okay, let me give you this verse. When we do missionary trainings, literally, we get those missionaries in. All right, here, take this verse. What's that verse saying? And you literally hold them to it. Tell me what the verse is saying. Well, I think, don't think. Great Controversy 595 tells us we have a chart that points out every way mark on the heavenward journey, and we ought not guess at anything. Don't guess. Tell me what the verse is saying. Think through the text. I'm saying this to us because some of us have been in the faith for years, and we are very, very casual, lazy, and laid back in our study time. We don't study hard. And as a result of that, we really don't know what we believe. We have found the easy way out because that's just a typical Western mindset. Find an easy way to get it done. And what we do is we just simply go to the writings. What does Ellen White say on it? And then we go to Ellen White. Okay, Ellen White answered it for me. But you still have no idea how to stand before that Baptist, that Pentecostal, that atheist who says, where in your Bible does it make those points? I don't want to hear from your so-called prophet. I want to hear from your Bible. Where does your Bible say that? Some of us don't know where to go. God says, I want to change that. Because we're called to prepare the way. And we don't prepare the way just for SDAs. We prepare the way for everybody. Now watch this. Did you know that you could kill two birds with one stone, if I may use that phrase? True story. I was in Bermuda. We did an evangelistic series. We did the evangelistic series, and I said, Father, show me the uniqueness of each of these doctrines. And I began to teach it outside of the typical textbook way that we teach all these doctrines. Started doing it. I had three Bible workers. When I taught those subjects, night after night, how many of you want to give your heart to Jesus and receive this truth in your heart? People raised their hands. But one night we gave certain truths and we started going into it. And the Lord's the presence of God was so thick in the room. And we started going through the text and going through the text. And at the end of it, I said, how many of us? Not one Ellen White quote. I said, how many of us want to give our hearts to Jesus and receive this truth? And the people raised their hands. But there was somebody else who raised their hands that I thought was strange. It was the Bible workers. The Bible workers was like, I want to receive this truth. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're the Bible worker. You know, whatever. <laughs> but nevertheless, I said, all right, everybody come forward. Who wants to go ahead? The Bible workers are coming forward. I mean, they forgot their job. <laughs> coming forward and they're just like, you know, they're looking like, what do I do next? And God said, see. The Lord taught me something. God says, see, when we study the Bible carefully and when we seek to win souls, we can teach our truths through the power of the Holy Spirit so profoundly 
that it wins both non-Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Adventists at the same time. So often we have all these SDA meetings and we vomit a thousand spirit of prophecy quotes and think we're edifying the saints. We're not edifying the saints like that. You got to teach them the word. And so what God is saying is this time is for real. This is coming. My brothers, and sisters, you can ignore it. You can do it, but it would be to your own detriment. I believe with all of my heart. I must study in such a way, especially now, because now I'm a public figure. So I really got to do it because I don't know who's watching me. I mean, somebody probably sitting in the Vatican like one day we got a lemon button right there. I mean, I don't know. It's to that point now. The influence is very large. I understand that. I don't even get how large the influence that God has given to me. And I got to understand to whom much is given, much is seriously required. It's like I got to be like, Father, keep me close to your heart. Because now if I fall, a lot of people are going to fall with me. And what I'm saying is, is I know that sooner or later I'm going to come in contact with this. I've already have in different ways. But thus far, the Lord has seen me through. I'm simply saying your day shall come. Your day is coming where we're going to be brought to the front. And so God says, study to show thyself approved. Excellence in Bible study. Now, understanding this. I'm going to go past that for a second. Yep. Well, that's interesting. OK, shouldn't have done that. All right. This is when it comes to studying the word of God. But we are to do more than preach and teach. Is that right? Go to Matthew 9. Look at Matthew 9. We're going to do more than just preach and teach. If we're going to prepare ye the way of the Lord, we're going to be doing more than just preaching and teaching. So now I want you to see Matthew 9. Look at Matthew 9 and verse 35. Matthew 9 and verse 35. The Bible says that Jesus went about all the villages and he was doing three things. What are the three things that Jesus was doing in the verse? Teaching, preaching, and what else? Healing. If we are going to do the full work of Christ and represent the full character of Christ, we're not just going to teach, we're not just going to preach, but we're also going to do what? We're also going to be doing healing. So therefore, God says that we all are called to be medical missionaries. Amen? All right. Now, understanding this, what was the focus of Jesus in his medical missionary work? Notice, Matthew 1, 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name what? Jesus, for he shall do what? Save his people from their sins. John 12 and verse 47. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Again, Matthew 9 verse 6. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed and go unto thine house. Finally, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was Jesus' focus in his medical missionary work? To save the lost. That's why if we're going to be medical missionaries, we need to understand the work of the true medical missionary is largely a spiritual work. And because of the fact that medical missionary work is largely a spiritual work, we must largely be a spiritual people. You understand that? You have to understand salvation if you're going to do effective medical missionary work. Let me repeat that. 
If you're going to do effective medical missionary work, you must clearly understand the plan of salvation. Do you understand that? Now, exercise. I'm not talking about exercise. I'm talking about, I'm about to give you an exercise. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Exercise. Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians, the second chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says. We're in Galatians chapter 2. When you get there, please say amen. Amen. All right. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, notice what it says right there in verse 16. You believe in just how many how many in here do not believe in justification by faith? How many of you don't believe in justification by faith? All right. So that means everybody believes in it, right? Okay. Galatians 2, 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall how much flesh? No flesh be justified. Question. How are we justified? We justify by faith, right? What are we not justified by? Works of what? The law. So do you agree that there is no work of the law that I can do that will make me justified before God? Do you believe that? Are you sure? Are you positive? Why do you keep getting more quiet? You intimidated by my hands? Don't let no man intimidate you. Men are flesh. Don't let no man scare you. You need to know what you believe. I told you, when you know what you believe, you talk different. You see how y'all was talking? When I said such and such, yes. Such and such, you sure? Yes. You don't even, you have not convinced me. You understand that? Question. Are we justified by the works of the law? Are you sure? Yes. Okay, you got, some, you got some volume. All right. Go to Romans 2. I appreciate that volume. That's all right. Not bad. Romans 2. In Romans, the second chapter, I got a question. Romans 2. If you're there, please say amen. amen. All right. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law, what's those next two words? Is that a future tense statement? That means you got to do the previous in order for the other part to happen, right? But the doers of the law shall be what? Um, Question. How am I justified? Is it by faith without works of the law? Or is it by doing the works of the law that I'm justified? 
You are so tempting me to call my wife and say, honey, I'm not coming home. I got to stay here for another week with the saints. And we need to have class because there is confusion in the camp. Medical missionaries need to understand how we're saved. And Galatians 2 says, no works of the law is how we're saved, but by faith. But Romans 2 says, you got to do the law and then you shall be saved. Then you're justified. What I'm saying is, you got to make these two verses gel for they are inspired by the same Holy Spirit and led by the same author, Paul. And I already hear the answers. I, 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 did, the, I did not do this at Wildwood. I did this at UT Pines. I did this at Meat. I, I did this a lot of places. And we're not getting it right. And if you don't know how to lead me to Jesus that I could be saved, then I don't care how many herbs and poultices you know how to make. You're not a medical missionary in God's eyes. Do you understand that? In God's eyes, he says, I'm not calling anybody a medical missionary unless they understand how people are saved. And you're not saved by guessing. You got to know. Do I need to keep the law and then I'm justified? Or before I even keep the law of God, by faith in Christ, my righteousness, I'm already justified before I even keep the law. How many of you say, before I keep the law, I am justified by faith? How many of you say that? So when Paul says, the doers of the law shall be justified. What is Paul saying? Faith without works is not written in Romans 2. It's the evidence of your faith. So I got to show evidence of my faith before I'm justified. So why are you telling me about the evidence of my faith? You can't do the work. But do I have to do the work in order to be justified? But I'm, I'm asking, how am I justified? But Paul says I got to do the law and then I'm justified. Okay, hold, hold on. You were saying? If you want to be saved by the law, you have to do the law. You can't just profess you know the law or you agree with the law. You have to actually do it. Adam and Eve could have been saved by the law before they sinned. But after sin, since nobody's kept the law, we can't be saved by the law. We have to now be saved by faith. Okay, so then the question is, when Paul says... Do the law, and then I'm justified. No, if you, if, if you could do the law perfectly, yeah, yeah, before Adam and Eve sinned, that would have been possible. So Paul doesn't mean what he's saying in Romans 2.13? No, he says, if you want to be saved by the law, you have to keep it. You can't just profess it. You can't just say, I believe it. But the question is, how do we come to that conclusion? You're misquoting. Who, me? Yeah. Really? Okay, go ahead. What am I saying? Excuse me one moment. 
That's what shall be means. Right. It's just pointing out the fact that those who do the law will be justified. The doers are the ones who have faith. So am I doing the law first and then I'm justified? But that's what the verse says. Doers shall be. It's like me saying, if you come to my house, you shall be recognized as a king. When are you going to be recognized as a king? When you come to my house. You got to come to my house first. Right? And then you'll be recognized as that's what the doers of the law shall be justified. Bear with me. Yes. Go ahead, bro. Okay. It is the faith of Jesus. He, if, if you're saying you're doers of the law are justified, but you cannot do anything without Jesus. So if you're a doer of the law, you're doing it by the faith of Jesus. Jesus' faith. No problem. I'm, I'm fine with that, but. No problem. So what I'm saying is, when am I justified? Before doing the law or after doing the law? Even if I do the law by the faith of Jesus, when am I justified? Before doing the law or after doing the law? You are justified by accepting Christ's righteousness. So before doing the law. You, you can never do the law. Okay. You can only do the law in Jesus. Okay. Respectfully, what I'm saying is, it's not answering my question. What I'm doing is I'm putting on the secularist or, or the Baptist or somebody else's shoes. And what I'm saying is, is that the verse clearly says, doers of the law shall be. Whatever comes after the word be cannot happen until I do the law first. So what I'm saying is, is I want to know how to be justified. I'm a wretched sinner. I want to be saved. And Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So somebody says, but Paul says, in other words, there's a group of people out there that say the Bible contradicts itself. Thus far, our answers are not helping that group. And you are violating, this, this, this is why these are exercises are beautiful. Do you know we're violating the very principle we just read not a little while ago? Nobody has told me what Romans 2.12 says, what Romans 2.11 says, what Romans 2.10 says. What Ro- Nobody told me what Romans 2.14 says, Romans 2.15. We're going over to James 2, faith without works is dead. We're going over to all these other places, but we're not sticking with the verse that's in question. So the first step I want to encourage you, family, whenever somebody throws a Bible verse at you that they, ha- uh, you know, have a question on or whatever the case may be, don't move from the verse. Stay right there on the verse. All the way. It's, it's, that thing should be so natural 
that it's like me not even looking, but I know exactly where all these steps are. I mean, it's like it's just so natural that I'm like, I got this. What I'm saying to you and I is that it should be so natural that when somebody asks you a question on a verse that you immediately say, let's look at the verses before. Let's look at the verses after. That should be your first initial step. Don't jump to James. Well, faith without works is dead and da 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 da. Don't jump there yet because all you're going to do is you're going to make me jump. I'm going to say, okay, well, what about what Genesis says? Since you want to jump, let's jump. You don't want to encourage jumping. What I would encourage you to do is go verses before, verses after, so you can explain the verse in question. Okay? That is the best way to study. The best way to study. Verses before, verses after to explain the verse in question. Okay? Best way to study. My point in this phase of our study is simply to say it is possible that even as medical missionaries, we sooner know how to get rid of diabetes than know how to help somebody get rid of sin. It's not good. There's a lot of medical missionaries like that. A lot. They know how to show people how to get rid of hypertension, diabetes, and various forms of arthritis. But we don't know how to show them how to get rid of sin out of their life. If you get somebody who sits down with you that says, okay, okay, I accept everything you say, okay. Oh, yeah, I would imagine you probably like those kind of people. But what about the ones that say, hold up, where'd you get that from? Those are the people I want. I want them. Give me the people that say, hold up, where'd you get that from, sir? No, actually, the verse says this. Notice what the verse says, right? I want you to challenge me. Make me think. And what I'm saying to you and I very simply is that it is possible that the very fundamentals of salvation, maybe we don't have as clear an understanding on it as we think. You see, always remember this little wise word right here. Remember this wise term. Every man and every woman is a genius as long as they are the ones talking. There's a lot of truth to what I just told you. Every man and every woman is a genius as long as they are the ones talking. When they stop talking and when somebody else starts talking and says, where'd you get that from? How do you figure? Well, what do you say about this? And they throw something back at us. Now we're going to find out how much of a genius we may or may not be. Now we're going to find out how much we may or may not know. This is what happens in Bible study all the time. As long as you're teaching and nobody's asking any questions, oh, man, you're fantastic. Everybody just. But it's when those people say, where'd you get that from? How do you figure that? How did you come to that conclusion? My friend Eugene Pruitt said very, very beautifully one day. He said, it is not so much that we even arrive at the right conclusion, but the real question is, how did you get there? Let me repeat that. It's beautiful. When he said that, I said, Eugene, I love that. He said, it's not so much that you even come up with the right conclusion, but the question is, how did you get to that conclusion? You want me to give you the answer? Oh, man, that would hurt you. I'm going to think about it. Yeah, let me think about it. All I'm simply saying is, you know what I want to do, quite honestly? I want to just debunk this thing of where people call themselves medical missionaries because they know how to use activated charcoal or they know how to, you know, make some plant-based food or because they know how to put a 
poultice on somebody's breast loaded with tumors, and they know how to pull those tumors out, and you know, they say, I'm a medical missionary. And when you say to them, okay, explain to me how I'm saved, and they're like, I'm not too sure about that, but I'm a medical missionary. And what I'm saying is, is that often that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the eyes of God. God is hurt when we don't know how to tell people how to go from sin to righteousness. Because God says you're supposed to know what you believe. You're supposed to know how someone is made right with God. And either it's by faith or it's by works, but it's definitely not by both. And I gave you a simple text that all you got to do is just go verse by verse. When you study verse one, thou, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, when you start judging your other brothers. So literally the whole chapter starts with judging each other. There are brethren who are judging each other. And while they're judging each other, there's one person who is actually saying to another person that they are messed up. But really, God is saying to them, but you don't realize that you might be just as messed up as the person that you're calling messed up. Is that not what verse one is telling us? And then in verse two, it just keeps going. Yes. Brother Levin, the first word is therefore, which means that something came before it. Talk to me. So in truth, I'm giving the in short. In truth, you can't start from verse one. You would have to go back to chapter one where Paul talks about a very serious crisis. He explains what the gospel power is, but then he also explains what how people are forfeiting that gospel power because they're busy worshiping the creation, the creation rather than the creator. And they become reprobate and fall into some very gross and wicked sins. And literally the last verse, what is it, verse 32? Is that the last verse of verse one, chapter 1? Yeah, and, and you know, he, he literally just talks about their condition. The fact that they're getting caught up into all these debates and gross sins and so on, and God condemns them and those who find enjoyment in those sins. And then after he says that, he says, therefore, you're inexcusable. So literally, I mean, he's just walking them through it. I'm telling you, you got to read the Bible like a storybook. you got to just follow, follow the path, follow the lead, follow the storyline. And that's how you'll start getting it. The whole issue of Romans 2 is brother judging brother, while at the same time being guilty of the very things that you're accusing the other person of being guilty of. What Paul does by time, actually he does it by verse 2. In verse 2, Paul contrasts their judgment with God's righteous judgment. And literally from verse 2 onward all the way up, to verse 12, all Paul talks about is God's judgment, God's way of judging. You know who's supposed to understand Romans 2 better than anybody else? Seventh-day Adventists. Because the chapter 2 is about judgment. And eventually it moves man's foul judgments out of the way and it focuses from verse 5 and onward. It literally focuses on God's righteous judgment, the way God judges. So everything is about judgment. Everything. God's judgment. So by the time you get to verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God in the judgment, but only those who have been doing the law are the ones that God will declare justified in the judgment. God does not declare anybody justified by profession in the judgment. You see, Go back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Think about it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the 
power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, very powerful. It says, for therein, in the gospel, it says, is the righteousness of God. That next word is very important. What's that next word? Revealed. Revealed. Anyone who truly has received God's righteousness, it will not stay hidden under a cloak. If we truly have received God's righteousness, it will be what? Revealed by way of an obedient life. That's why we can go to people who break God's commandments and say, you are not experiencing God's righteousness no matter what you say, if you know that you should be doing this and you still choose to overlook it. If you're really made right by God, it's going to be what? Revealed. And it's going to be revealed in the judgment and God will get the final say to say, these are my justified ones. They were justified by faith and they are revealing their justification by faith in their works. This is what God will declare in the judgment. The whole chapter was dealing with judgment. Contextual reading will always help us with this. Nobody brought up judgment. We, we didn't even talk about judgment. We were just busy saying faith without works is dead and da, da, da. And I understand we were busy saying, no, 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 we're saved by faith. But it's like, no, but he says that the doers of the law shall be justified. What we didn't understand is the doers of the law shall be declared justified. That's the Greek on the word. Literally, look up the Greek on it. The doers of the law shall be declared in the judgment as God's justified ones. This is literally what the verse was bringing out. But we didn't talk about judgment. We kind of left that out the picture. My point is very simple. True medical missionaries must understand salvation. You got to know how to explain it. You got to know how to walk people through it. You just got to know how to do it. If we're truly doing medical missionary work. Because it's more about salvation than anything else. Notice this. Those who labor as Christ, the great medical missionary, labored, must be spiritual minded. But not all who are doing medical missionary work are exalting God and his truth. God and his truth. Not all doing medical missionary work are exalting God and his truth. Not all are submitting to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is the issue. Is some of us understand better how to get rid of diabetes than how to get rid of sin out of people's lives. And that's a problem. It's one thing to be a medical worker. It's a whole different ballgame to be a medical missionary. You understand that? Our health work. Medical missionaries understand this principle. Disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. In case of sickness, four things should be done. What are the four things written? The cause should be ascertained. What else? Unhealthful conditions should be changed. What else? Wrong habits should be corrected. What's last? Now, what's the word before nature is to be assisted? Then. Now, my brothers and sisters, have you ever met somebody? They're sick. And we immediately say, here, here's the remedy you need to take or drink, or here's this poultice, here's this cream. You ever met somebody that does that? And they call themselves medical missionaries. You know, I've had people do that. They say, I'm a medical missionary. And then I ask them a question. I'll say, okay, if you're a medical missionary, here's my question. Very simple. Um, 
I have migraine headaches. What should I do? Oh, what you should do is take this tea, and I want you to do this. I'm like, eh, failed. Failed. What's the first step? Cause should be ascertained. Because if you help me get rid of my migraine headache, the problem is you didn't show me my cause of my migraine headache. So what's going to happen is you relieve me tonight. But I'm going to be sick and messed up tomorrow night. Because you never showed me what I was doing wrong. You understand that? This is inspired. The cause should be ascertained. And then once I find out the cause, if it's an unhealthful condition, I got to change that. If it's a wrong habit, I need to change that. And then I go to the remedy now. Now I'm going to the hydrotherapy. Now I'm going to the this and the that. Now you're going to the remedy. And then when you go to the remedy, the remedy is supposed to do two things. That's going to guide the remedy that you use. What are the two things the remedy is supposed to do? Assist nature in her efforts to expel impurities and reestablish right conditions in the system. That means that if you're going to be a good medical missionary, you really need to know what you are prescribing. You got to really know what you're giving to the people. You have to intelligently tell people. You know, the big thing that's right now a lot of people are telling everybody is curcumin. You know, you need to take curcumin, curcumin for everything, because it gets rid of all this inflammation, which is foundational to cancers, Alzheimer's, da 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 Well, I love that. I think that's fantastic. That's a wonderful herb, curcumin. Okay, curcumin comes from turmeric. All right, turmeric, that wonderful little thing that we use to curry our dishes. Okay, fine. But if we're going to tell somebody to take curcumin or what have you, I hope you also tell them that they need to eat something. Because it's called a fat-soluble vitamin. So that means you got to have something that has some fats in it so that way you can take it. You want to show them how, unless you're going to use pepper or something else to make sure that it gets absorbed. It's just being a little bit more intelligent. Sometimes we just tell people take stuff, but we don't really understand. We tell people take vitamin D, but you don't know, if you take too much vitamin D, it can cause arterial plaque. Too much vitamin D causes arterial plaque. So you better tell people if you're going to take vitamin D, how much vitamin D they should be taking. If you're going to tell somebody to take vitamin A, absolutely necessary, too much vitamin A produces toxicity in your system. All I'm simply saying is, is that we need to understand if we're going to do this. Okay? Laws of health. Do we need to understand that? How many of you are familiar with the eight laws of health? How many of you like like $1,000 tonight before you go home? You want $1,000 tonight before you go home? Show me from the Bible. Show me from the spirit of prophecy. Eight laws of health. I'll write you a check for $1,000 tonight, and I don't even have my checkbook. <laughs> Guessing? There's nowhere in the Bible, there's nowhere in the spirit of prophecy that it says eight. You see, if I was preaching, I said, we got to learn how to keep the nine commandments. The nine commandments is what God called us to keep. To break the nine commandments is sin. Y'all would look at me like, there's something wrong with this brother. He keeps saying nine. It's ten. I say, where did you get that from? You say, the Bible revealed it. Okay, fine. That's why we stick to that number, 10, because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 9, it says 10 commandments. Okay, fantastic. Where in the Bible does it say eight? Where in the spirit of prophecy does it say eight? 
you're not going to find it and you're not getting a thousand dollars from me because there's more than eight. Oh, do tell. Right? You're going to get a rubber check for that one. <laughs> Whatsoever you do. <laughs> There's more than eight, family. Notice the, notice the evidence. Notice the evidence. I'm a man of evidence. Notice this. Everything in bold, please count it with me. Pure air. What, no, count with me. One, two. Pure air. Water. Cleanliness. Proper diet. Purity of life. Firm trust in God. That's six. That's six. Are remedies for the want of which thousands are dying. Yet these remedies are going out of date because their skillful use requires work that the people do not appreciate. Fresh air. No, it's not seven because it's not bold. It was already mentioned here. Get that? What number did we land at? Six. Six. Now watch this. Exercise. Pure water. Already said that here. Clean, sweet premises. Ah, somebody says, what's that? I like questions like that. What's that? Time for education. Cleanliness deals with your person. Clean, sweet premises deals with your property. It deals with your property. You understand that? Your house, where you live, your property, my premises. You understand that? How many we got? Eight. Now watch this. Are within the reach of all with but little expense, but drugs are expensive, both in the outlay of means and effect produced upon the system. Now watch Ministry Healing 127. These, the things in bold were not mentioned in Councils on Health 323. Now where do we land at Councils on Health 323? What number? Eight. Eight. Now watch this. Pure air. Sunlight. Abstemiousness. That's temperance. Ten. Temperance is not in here at all. Rest. Exercise, proper diet, the use of water, trust in divine power. All of them mentioned. How many did we get up to? Eleven. Eleven. And they're all remedies. The only difference is this is called true remedies. This one's just plainly called remedies. And there's a reason for that. The one in Councils on Health was simply teaching the various laws of health that God has given to humanity. But in Ministry Healing 127, page 126 was actually talking about the use of drugs and how people use drugs as a remedy. And so what she does is by the time she gets to page 127, she's contrasting, saying these are the true remedies. So there's no difference between these two. That's 11 laws of health. But we're stuck on eight. Now, if we go even deeper, knowledge must be gained in regard on how to eat and and so as to preserve health. Sickness is the result of violating nature's law. Our first duty, one which we owe to God, to ourselves and to our fellow men, is to obey the laws of God. These include the laws of health. What is inclusive of the laws of health in the quote that was not mentioned in the previous quotes? Dress. That's twelve. So what God is showing us is that there's absolutely, you know where eight laws of health comes from? Accommodation of acronyms. That's where it came from. 
accommodation of acronyms. It's not, it's not bona fide inspiration. It was just to accommodate the acronym. You heard the acronym, New Start. God's plan. These are acronyms that we use. But it's not inspired. There's no reason why you can't. Some people make sanctuary. Some people have done sanctuary. What's my point? My point is very simple. If you stick to eight, you might neglect something that could literally save somebody's life. Sometimes we're telling people to drink water, get rest, and do this and do that, but we're not addressing cleanliness. We're not addressing their premises. We're not addressing how they dress. You understand that? That's the danger of sticking to eight. Is it sin to say eight laws of health? It's not sin. It's just not correct. It's just there's more than eight laws of health. That's all I'm saying. There's more than eight laws of health, and we need to be okay with that. It is not a sin to say eight laws of health. You will never hear me say Trinity. You're not going to hear me say Trinity. Why? Not because I'm an anti-Trinitarian. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. I have no problem with that, but it's Godhead. Godhead is in the Bible. I'm not going to use Trinity because it causes a lot of confusion with people. So I choose not to use that term, and I'm not an apostate because I don't use that term. It's not in the Bible, and it's not in the spirit of prophecy, so how in the world can you call me apostate? You understand that? I'm not going to get caught up into a term. I'm just going to say Godhead. I choose to say Godhead. I believe the teaching, but my words are going to say Godhead. Same principle. It's like there's nothing in inspiration that says eight laws of health, and you're not abandoning the truth. You're not abandoning God's word because... You no longer ascribe to eight laws of health. I simply say the laws of health. I don't say the 12 laws of health because I might find out something next year. You understand what I'm saying? I just simply say the laws of health, what the laws of health are. It's this, 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 and this. If we're doing true gospel medical missionary evangelism, please do not lock yourself into merely an acronym. You see, what I, again, excellence. We're talking about excellence. If I'm going to help somebody go from sickness to wholeness, I want to approach the mind and the body and the person with excellence because I want to help them. Final thing that I'll cover this evening. Do you know one of the major issues that a lot of us are neglecting, sadly, when it comes to medical missionary work? Three verses. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose what? Mind is stayed upon thee. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your My son, give me thine heart. And the word heart means God wants our minds. Now, notice that the Bible is replete with the idea that God wants our mind. 1 Peter 1.13 says, gird up the loins of your mind. That's where we get the term guard well the avenues of your soul. Protect your mind. Okay? God is big on the mind. Why? Because Satan is too. Notice this. Satan is the originator of disease. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Now watch the next sentence. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here in the mind. Do some math with me, family. Nine-tenths, what is that? 90% of diseases have their foundation in the mind. Depending on the sanitarium, that is one of the last things that we cover. 
It is the one thing we cover least, many of us. I, don't, I have no idea what you do here at Heartland, but what I'm saying is, is that in a lot of places, a lot of sanitariums are discovering we are neglecting dealing with the mind. We are not dealing with people's minds. And you know that a remedy will work but so much depending on the state of the person's mind. You can give them hydro, you can give them a bunch of stuff. Depending on their state of mind, those remedies may not, may not work at all or they'll be limited in their ability to work, depending on the state of the mind. And so what I'm saying to each and every one of us is that we need to understand that if I'm going to be a true, faithful gospel medical missionary, I need to understand the human mind like never before. I leave you with this close here. Yes, we need to learn hydrotherapy. Sure. We need to understand massage. Absolutely need to understand herbal treatments. And we should understand healthy food prep. All of those things are absolute essential modalities. That's not an issue for us. But the thing that I want us to remember is this. Ellen White and drug medication, I'm not going to cover that. There's a, a message I did at the Amen conference. Can you imagine? They had, a, they had me speak to all these doctors at Amen. And we talked about a lot of this stuff, drug medication and this, that, and the other. Look for the, look for 20, uh, the, the November 2017 messages that I did on Audioverse. Look for it with the Amen conference. And I have a whole section I did on drug medication and Ellen White's counsels and all of that. You can listen to that to learn about what I said. I'm going to pass it. But... Ellen White actually at times recommended drug medication. I showed this slide uh, at the meeting and so on because, you know, you got some medical missionaries that are like no drugs under no circumstances. That is not what the Bible or spirit of prophecy teaches. But nevertheless, I want to give you this. Mechanics, lawyers, merchants, men of all trades and professions educate themselves that they may become masters of their business. The prophet says, should the followers of Christ be less intelligent? And while professedly engaged in his service, be ignorant of the ways and means to be employed? I so appreciate this. I read this over 15 years ago. The prophet of God says the same way that mechanics, lawyers, merchantmen, the same way that they're excellent in their trades, they're masters of their business. She said the followers of Christ should be masters of their business. They should be masters of their work. They should be excellent. Look at what she says. The entire, the enterprise of gaining everlasting life is above every earthly consideration. In order, now pay attention to those words, in order, the best way that this is done, in order to lead souls to Jesus, there must, is there any room for not doing it? There must be a knowledge of human nature and a study of the human mind. Much careful thought and fervent prayer are required to know how to approach men and women upon the great subject of truth. My brothers and sisters, what I'm leaving you with is that in our gospel, medical, missionary evangelism, God has called us to work with excellence. And we need to cease and desist in giving God half service. God says, I want more from you. God says, consider how you do your job for those of you who are successful. There's some of us who do even our jobs very sloppily. But for those of us who have businesses and jobs and you're doing well, 
Consider the effort, the energy, the excellence that you do your work. God says, should not I get double in my work? And this is what I'm saying to each and every one of us. May God help us that we will be genuine, that we will be sincere, that we will assess our hearts this evening and say, Lord, number one, how can I work for you? What is it that you've given me, my family, or all of us? What can we do to lift up the name of Jesus in our community, in our home, in our church, in wherever I have a sphere of influence? Lord, help me that whatever I do for you, I will do it with my whole heart as if I'm doing it for you. When I go visit somebody, I'm doing it as if I'm visiting you. Because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 25, doesn't he? He says, some of you I'm going to treat like sheep. Some of you I'm going to treat like goats. And Jesus says to the goats, he says, you depart from me, go into everlasting fire. Why? He says, because I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was in prison, I was naked, and you didn't help me. But he's going to say to the others, enter into the joys of salvation. Why? Because I was thirsty, naked, hungry, etc. And he said, you helped me. There will be no starless crowns in heaven, family. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. God calls us to work for the master. And when we work, remember, perform your work under the guidance of God's spirit with excellence. Question? How many of us understood the study? Do we really understand it? How many of you are going to make a covenant with God? You're going to step it up. You're going to step it up. Step up that study life. You're going to step it up and say, Lord, it's time to do what you call me to do with excellence because I'm preparing to meet some great men. I'm preparing to meet some of the world's greatest minds. And by your grace, you will help me. And he'll help you. And he will help you. He is your source of strength. He is your, not only your friend, he's your best friend. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I'm so thankful that he's willing to help me. And he's willing to help you. Let's go ahead and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the time that we were able to spend one with another. We thank you, Lord, for the way your spirit has truly spoken to our heart. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, help us that whatever it is that we do, it will be truly as if we are doing it even for Jesus himself. Teach us, Lord, how to perform our work with excellence, for Jesus left a perfect example. Whether it was in the home or in the field, he worked with excellence. Help us, Lord, to accept nothing less and to strive for it daily under the power of thy spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.